On February 16th, 2006, I hit the return button on my keyboard and uploaded the very first episode of The Candid Frame, which featured a conversation with UN photographer John Isaac. Now, almost 14 years later, we release episode 500, the one you're listening to right now. When the idea for the podcast first came to me, I had a general sense that it would be successful. By that, I mean I knew there would be an audience. I knew that because it was the kind of show that I wanted to hear, but it didn't exist. There were certainly other photography podcasts out there by people who would become friends like Jeff Curto, Martin Bailey, Chris Marquardt, and John Arnold. But the specific show that I wanted to hear just wasn't around, so I created it myself. I did this even though I barely understood what podcasting was. I also didn't know anything about recording or editing audio, creating and maintaining a website, nor did I have any idea of what an RSS feed was. My only real advantage was that I had access to photographers and I had a lot of questions. The show started with only a few dozen listeners, but now there are thousands all over the world. And while it may not be the most downloaded photography podcast out there, I'm very proud of what it's become and what it's meant to so many people. I love what I do here. I'm always so excited when I have a chance to sit down with someone and chat with them for an hour. Because regardless of their level of fame or success, I'm just hoping for a great conversation with another human being. And when that happens, it's just golden. And as good as I've gotten with interviewing people and producing the show, I have to thank the many listeners who provide me an audience and who by subscribing in increasing numbers let me know that I'm onto something. I'm also really thankful to Marco Torres who lent me his digital recorder so that I could record my first episode. And my fellow OG podcasters as well who welcomed me into this new and growing medium. I'm thankful for Martin Taylor, who volunteered his video audio skills to the production of the show years ago. And lastly, I have to thank my wife, Cynthia, who has supported my work more so than anyone else. And lastly, I want to thank my guest for today, Joel Meyerwitz, a master photographer I have long admired and I'm lucky enough to call a friend. When I knew that Joel would be available for my 500th episode, I was thrilled because every time I've sat down with him, the result has been everything I hoped for for any episode. And again, for the fourth time, he doesn't disappoint. And thanks for joining me for this 500th episode. I couldn't have done any of this without you. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. So how's the year been treating you? I know you are always busy, but you enjoying yourself? I am. We're, you know, we've been living in Tuscany for five years now, and we have a little place in London where I'm speaking to you from, and it's been good. Life has been full of interesting challenges in a good way, good shows coming up, books online, commissions to do things. Last, well, two weeks ago, just before Christmas or so, I got an invitation from the Vatican wow. to come down and see the Vatican museums and see if I could find 
anything that I would want to photograph, like a body of work, not just a picture, inside the Vatican museums. And so I'm going in three weeks. I have a date to go down and take the first look and see if it's a project. So it's that kind of surprise that at my age now of 81, it's so satisfying to be able to have these things come in that are unexpected and maybe even really interesting projects. Yeah, it's just all these new opportunities that come your way. That's fantastic. It's quite a blessing. Yeah. And I the, guess if you live long enough, it happens. And the fact that you are capable of, of saying yes to those opportunities, because I'm always amazed at your, uh, your constitution, that you're still out there doing as much as you are. <laughs> I, hope, I only hope I can be so lucky. <laughs> Well, I hope you're up and outside a lot because I think that uh, that was the money in the bank for me. All my years of swimming and biking and walking the streets of New York, and I, I, I still feel physically in good shape, really good shape. Yeah, when I was watching that video, uh, I think I mentioned that the last time I talked to you, there's a bit in the uh, video that you were doing for the Masters of Photography series where you're talking to the camera. And then just behind you, there's this person that starts walking behind you, and then you make a dash after them because you see a photograph. <laughs> and I'm going, yeah, that's where I want to be. <laughs> yeah, turned on a dime. <laughs> oh. How did you like the Masters of Photography course? Thing? Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed it. I've never had a chance to shoot alongside you, so that's about as close as I, I've gotten today. So it was really kind of seeing the way you approached it as well as hearing you talk about it and seeing you doing it at the same time, I thought was really nice. And then considering how well I knew your work, it was able to like connect all these different pieces, you know, and also understand the things that I've, I've adopted that are similar to yours and how uh, we're also different. So it's really sort of a fascinating sure. perspective. Well, next time I come to L.A., which I may, because I think there's a gallery there that might want to show some work, let's plan to go for a walk together and oh, shoot together. I would so we can that. have a day of just friendly playing on the streets. That'd be great. I really look forward to that. Uh, well, thank you I for sending out the, the book. Really lovely. But it also serves as a great point of discussion, and because we've talked multiple times before. Yeah. I always like exploring new angles whenever I have a chance to, to speak with you. And one of the interesting things about this book is that it isn't new work. It's work that you created back in the 80s. But it was an opportunity to revisit those images with much different eyes. And these were images that you made in, in Provincetown, which is at the end of Cape Cod in, in Massachusetts. And it was the, the person taking care of your, your archive during the time that sort of was the instigator for revisiting this work. Tell me about her and how she came to reconsider those photographs. So her name is Jenny Goldberg, and she had worked at Aperture years before. And then she left, and I needed my archive and database reconfigured. And, and Jenny was good at that, so I hired her. She was still friendly with the people at Aperture. And one day, uh, Michael Famagetti, who runs the magazine, was uh, having a sandwich with her. And he said, you know, I'm going to do a thing on style, 80s style. And I'm wondering if you know of any pictures. And she said, oh, my God, Joel has style photographs of Provincetown. He was there during the AIDS crisis and during 
the, the period when people started piercing and tattooing and gender issues started playing a stronger role in our society, you know, in our cultural awareness, you might say. And so she said, I'll send you a few pictures. So she sent him 240 photographs of large format portraits of people on the streets of Provincetown. And, you know, at the time, I wasn't making a document about those issues. I was photographing the people that I saw on the streets. I, I was interested in portraiture for the first time in my life, because I think the view camera gives you this advantage of having a big machine that requires people to s slow down and hold still, very 19th century in a way. And as a street photographer, my portraits were really on the go, and I never asked anybody if I could take that picture. I just, I just winged them on the way. And so this required a whole different set of instincts and approach in order to make a serious portrait of another person and even ask the question, who is this portrait of? Is it of them or is it, does, does it reflect me? In any case, Jenny showed Michael these photographs and he said, oh my God, there's a book here and Aperture is a very gender-oriented publisher now. Let's do a book that shows this segment of the population in the early 80s and show how much it prophesies what's come to pass now in the, in the cultural climate we live in. So that, in a nutshell, was how, uh, how it all came about. And I'm really fortunate that Jenny was as, as sharp and, and committed as she was. Yeah, and that, and that part of the world has is, is always been a popular draw, not just for the LGBTQ community, but also for artists, writers, painters, and of course, photographers. And it seems to be a, a real magnet for eccentricity. Was yeah. that part of the draw? <laughs> well, you know, it wasn't what drew me to Cape Cod. What drew me was I wanted to gain greater descriptive power and I switched from 35 to 8 by 10 and I thought the Cape with its with Provincetown which is such a strange place Provincetown is like 8th Street in Greenwich Village it's a very dynamic lively place set in an incredibly beautiful natural seaside setting so it has a funny mix of really rural fishing town with a little bit of an edge of a kind of urbanity. So I thought, oh, I'll function there. I'll be able to work on the street with the view camera and it'll be slower. But what I saw when I got there was that this town at the very end of Cape Cod, which you could consider Land's End, these kinds of Land's End places often draw people who want to, quote, get away from it all and go to the very furthest point on a coastline and then experience what it's like to live inside that kind of community. And it turns out to be a very accepting and tolerant community. It's like, you, you're crazy. You want to come to Provincetown? Join the rest of the crazies. Mm -hmm. and, and so that benefited me because it offered me a wide range of human beings who covered, you know, from 
Portuguese fishermen to uh, uh, Broadway actors to New York City painters to poets and and writers and dance companies and opera singers. I mean, a cultural sweep came through this tiny, tiny town. There's only 3,000 people there in the winter. But on a summer's day, there could be 50,000 people in Provincetown just for the day. Yeah. So you can see from this description how rich an environment it might be to kind of study the, it's like the tide brings in all this stuff and deposits it there for a day. And you can walk around and pick up all these beautiful seashells and sea glass. That's how the people seem to be represented to me. And I was fascinated by it. And though I started in 76, I spent the next 35 summers in Provincetown. You mentioned that this was a time of transition for you, where you were going from the work that you had done in the street, largely in, in New York, where you would make photographs of people, but it wasn't with, oftentimes, with their conscious participation. They were oftentimes an element within the composition of the scene that you were seeing and the moment that was playing out in front of your camera. But when it came to these portraits, you were actually soliciting their their participation in it. And one of the things that when I look at, at the portraits and I've heard you talk about was that the small details that would make a street photography really sing were the very things that you were also looking for or that you would recognize in the creation of the portrait, like the way someone is holding their hand, uh, the knife digging into a thumb, or the way they're holding a cigarette. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about how those skills that you learned on the streets helped you to create those moments, especially since you were often only making one or two frames on your on your large format camera of the subject. As always, Ibarnix, you've got a really good observation of how things come about. It's, it's true, on the street, you know, there's such a mix of people and activities, and a street photographer has to be on the lookout for the larger scene that might reveal something of social interest or cultural interest, or it touches you as an artist personally, but you're also sweeping up all the details, the way someone's carrying you know, uh, a big bouquet of flowers and somebody else is carrying a framed painting and people are lugging their shopping or their handbags. Or I mean, all of this richness is part of the little pings across the street photographs frame that keep the interest engaged. So when I started making portraits of these people, and by the way, I use the same instinct, you might say. If I'm walking down the street in Provincetown, people are just coming past me, you know, and suddenly one person, for some reason, has a kind of vibration that touches whatever my core vibration is, and I sense the possible harmony. And in those moments, I would sort of have to get my courage up and cross the social barrier between strangers and go over to this person and say, hi, you know, I, um, I really need to make a portrait of you. And of course, I'm standing there with a six foot tall wooden camera <laughs> on yeah. a tripod. And they immediately say, what's, what's this wooden camera? What's this guy doing? And so in a way, the camera acts as bait. And people would 
take me seriously. They wouldn't think I was going to run up with, with an iPhone. Of course, in those days, there were no iPhones. And so people would be curious about me. And it would allow me just that breath or two to establish a kind of communication rhythm with them. It could be playful. You say something funny or you, you make an observation about their, their clothing or the way their, their sunburn looks or, or something. And, and by establishing that human moment and then getting them to say yes, I could then say, oh, well, let's stand over here. And I'll set my camera up. And then I would tell him it's going to take, you know, a couple of minutes because this is a 19th century instrument. It's very slow. And really what I want from you is to be able to look into the camera. I'm only going to take one frame. I want you to look into the camera. And if possible, I want to see if I can see your secret. Whatever your mm. hidden mystery is, I'm hoping you're going to deliver it to the camera. And then I would I'd tell them to hold still, and I'd focus the camera, and I'd put the, the holder in, pull out the dark slide. And then I step aside so that I'm alongside the camera. I'm not behind it like a 35 millimeter. And at that point, I have to keep a line of conversation between me and them, like a thin a thread, like a spider's web thread, in which I'm holding them there so that they can feel a kind of a moment of relaxing and giving themselves over to the camera. So I don't press the button when I see them posy, smiling too much or, you know, giving their body some kind of cute form. I wait until they dissolve and some instinct in me says, ah, their reality is telling itself in this moment. Now, it's, it's a risk. You know, you can be wrong 50% of the time, right? You yeah. say yes, and it's a, it's a no. But I've, I've trained on the street for long enough. And I certainly learned as I was making these portraits how to read human potential. I could see someone who's unsettled, you know, and I would just hold on a little longer and talk to them a little more until I got them to kind of just melt. Because what I wanted, and I think this is important to consider for all your listeners, is that portraiture, particularly today in the era of the smartphone, is very self-conscious. And everybody's posing and trying to look their best. What I wanted was the possibility of intimacy, of human intimacy between two strangers where someone would trust me enough to relinquish something of their secret to the camera. And I think if you look at these pictures carefully in Provincetown, it's almost in every picture that you get a feeling that you're with the person. Yeah. It's not a stage studio portrait. There's something vulnerable about these people. I, mean, I don't know. Is that, is that your experience? There's a genuineness there Good. That, that comes across in, in your portraits, which is uh, something that I really love and something that I always strive to, to achieve in my own photographs. But uh, as you said, with mixed success. But you wrote something interesting in the book about the three sort of components that, that sort of make 
not so much the photograph, but the experience of making the photograph. And, you, and we've just talked about the third point. The first point was having an understanding of how the camera sees, having an understanding of how the photographer sees. And then that third thing in terms of the almost indescribable X factor of the recognition of the genuine moment. And it seems that a lot of people get fixated on the first two because you, you have to have become comfortable with the first two in order to be able to give yourself up to the third thing, which is so ephemeral. You're so good. <laughs> you really understand. You really understand the nature of this game of sight that we photographers play with the world at large, whether it's portraiture, animal photography, landscapes, whatever it is, there's some way in which we have to merge with the subject and the moment. In a way, we have to give up our own ego and our self-consciousness and feel the, the potential meanings in the moment and that comes like a breeze, you know, it just comes over us. Just, and, and we recognize it in a, in a moment. And it's in those moments that photography exists because that's when you press the button. Photography captures a moment, 250th of a second or one whole second. My portraits were often anywhere from a quarter to a whole second, sometimes longer. There are some of those evening portraits which are three, four, five seconds long. So, you know, it's a big risk that people will move. So the, the skills that one has to learn to maintain the subject's stillness and, and the purity of their giving over of themselves, relinquishing their secret to a, a camera operated by someone they just met, this is mystical stuff, you know. It's like being a magician, a tribal elder who knows how to pull these truths out of somebody. But it takes a lot of time and belief that you can do this. You have to be patient enough and calm enough inside so that all of the messages that are coming from the moment and the subject, you are receiving clearly. There's no anxiety or haste. Even though street photography is fast, mm -hmm. it's instantaneous. You can do it fast, but not hastily. In other words, if you expand the moment of consciousness, your own consciousness as an artist, time becomes flexible so that in the space of recognition comes the thousandth of a second of pressing the button. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like... Oh, yeah. How many different ways are there? This is almost like Einstein's physics in a way about time. You can manage these two dimensions of time in the same living consciousness of, of your being there, recognizing it, raising the camera, pressing the button, and knowing that you have crossed paths with this moment of what? Of your destiny. Yeah that you've either created this moment or you've witnessed this moment. And I, I know it's probably going to sound to our listeners a little bit, you know, like uh, new agey, but you talk to any serious photographer who's done it during the course of their lifetime, and they will say something similar. 
because it's not only mechanics. There's a, an understanding of the temporal nature of time's movement and passage, and the actions we see that take place in that are things we can comprehend quite fully if we've practiced the medium long enough. And, and you know, it's something to aspire to. I, I, I think that for all of your listeners out there, that photography isn't pure mechanical, press the button, you know, aim the lens. Photography also has this spiritual dimension in which your humanity is what is being recorded along with the subject matter. And if you look at the work of any great photographer, Robert Frank, Cartier Bresson, you see again and again in the photographs the expression of their humanistic qualities, how moved they were by what they saw. It's not just design out there. It's mm-hmm. something that is so um, special about this medium that a machine can record emotions and feelings and, and humanity. And we give this to each other as, as our offering. It's not just about shaping a picture nicely in a frame, but how much, how much compassion or emotion or understanding can you bring to the frame with, with an interesting you know, arrangement of all this uh, information? And I think that's the secret of, of photography in the 21st century. For me, what I love most about it is its ability to solicitate wonder, especially when it's of oh. the most ordinary and familiar scenes or subjects. You know, the, the details that become so important in a portrait are always hold a fascination for me because they are often so subtle and minute. And I think that what I love about it is the presence of awareness you have to be in that moment in order to be able to recognize it. Because as you know, touchy-feely as it can be, sort of recognizing the moment that you actually release the shutter, it's, yeah. it's, it's yeah. actually because you're paying attention not just to the person's face, but the way their shoulders are, the, the placement of their feet. All those small, little, almost, almost imperceptible things that when all of a sudden they just sort of come together and then you recognize it and you make the photograph. And it's the same thing that I experience on the street, where it's the light, it's the person walking in front of me, and then there's also this person in the background and this person closing an umbrella and all these sort of disparate elements that are happening within a fraction of a second. And then you can almost anticipate it, and then you press the shutter just as it comes together. And I think when I look at, at these portraits, there's much the same thing, even though the movement within the frame is not as brisk as it may be on Fifth Avenue, but it nevertheless is there. And I think that that's having an understanding that even though these are two different types of photography, it's the same sensibility, the same sort of developed awareness that's essential for this to be effective. Beautifully said. And, and the key word, right, early on in your statement, you said, I notice... What else is photography? It's us walking around with a camera, noticing the things that are interesting to us. And it's the multiplicity of things 
Right, the small details, the large forms, the, the, the way shadows cut across it, the, the movement of people. We are trying, the photographers who really understand the nature of the medium, we're trying to unify all of the things we see in an organized way, in a rectangle, so that it makes for an interesting moment of observation. Mm -hmm. To me, I, I call that the game of sight. It's just the pleasure of being out in the world and noticing the little details and the big gestures. Because for me, and we've talked about this before too, when you hold a photograph in your hand, or you look at it in a book even, you start to read the photograph. It's like a text. And it's not like words on a page where you read from the upper left across the first line and down and down until you get to the bottom of the page. The text is open-ended. You can enter anywhere that the picture calls out to you. Somebody might see the thing in the center. Somebody else might see the, uh, the detail in the lower right-hand corner of the frame. We begin to read and appreciate the information in the, in the rectangle each of us individually, until we begin to assemble a kind of uh, narrative. I don't mean a story, but a narrative of the events that are happening in the frame that tell us about the photographer's perception, as well as about our own interests in this. So we, as the viewer of the photograph, have a kind of communication with the mind of the artist through the selection of objects, incidents, people, lighting that that person has recorded in an instant. So it's a very dynamic and dimensional reading of a flat plane. After all, a photograph is a two-dimensional, you know, bits of color on a piece of paper or black and white on a piece of paper. And yet it represents a three-dimensional reality that people lived in, passed through, and, and, and one that we all recognize. You know, it's not like when you look at paintings, every painter has his, his or her own iconography. Scribble, scratch, big brush strokes, circles, thrown paint. People choose a form for their language. Photographers are stuck with reality. You press the button, you got pavement, cars, sky, telephone poles, you know, signage, people. You got all of it. How do you make sense out of it? How do you render it personally yours or beautiful or meaningful? I mean, there's so many different things we're trying to do with a photograph. You know, it's amazing that there are that many photographers in the world who produce works of individual significance and beauty and meaning whose work we actually look forward to seeing. I know that you had a discussion with Richard Avedon about the idea of the, of the process of making photographs because you, like you said, made only one or two. Richard would make a lot more than one or two of any given given subject. Can, can you tell us a little more about that conversation? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I met Dick Avedon very early in my career. In 1963, I, I, I took a class 
with Alexei Radovich, who was the famous art director of Harper's Bazaar magazine. And he was famous for having sort of discovered Robert Frank and Gary Winogrand. And a lot of people had taken his class. And Tony Ray Jones, the English photographer, and, and I said, oh, we'll go take Alexei's class. But within a few sessions, Alexei became sick. And since the class was held in Richard Avedon's studio, in the office of his studio, Dick took over the class. And, and you know, we were just students, but he and I hit it off a, a little bit back then, 1963. And over the years, we would see each other occasionally. And then one day, right during the time that Avedon was doing uh, the, the People of the West, you know, the book of uh, all his, uh, what's it, is it called? The Amer the American, West, American West. The American West, the American And so some museum or some place in Sweden had published a set of posters, one of Dick Avedon's man with the bees covering him, mm -hmm. and the other, my woman, my redheaded young woman covered in freckles. And they sent both posters to my studio in New York and asked me in a note, could you bring Avedon's poster over to him? So I, I called Dick up and I said, I, I got this thing from you know Sweden. Can I bring it over? Said, sure. When I got to his place, he, it, it was a quiet morning there. He had been working on the pictures of the West. We sat talking for a while, and, and he showed me a lot of the scouting that had been done for those people. And I said, you didn't choose these people? He said, well, I, I did, but I have a scout out in the West, and they take Polaroids of people on the street that they think I might be interested in. They FedEx them to me. I, you know, a day later, I send it back to them and I say, hold this guy, hold this woman, save this person, put them up in a hotel, buy them a meal, you know, like mm -hmm. keep them there. And then when they assemble enough people, he flies out and he flies out with his crew and they set up no seam in a parking lot or something like that outside. So he has daylight plus reflectors. And then he just will shoot 70, 80, 90 sheets of eight by 10. And I said, I'm really puzzled, Dick. I said, I, you know, I'm a street <laughs> photographer. I, I'm not a studio photographer. And I feel like I, you know, I recognize people on the street that m mean something to me. And I have to enact this and go over and talk to them. I said, have you ever done that? Do you want to do that? He said, no. He said, I'm a studio photographer. He said, the magazines pick the most interesting people in the world and they send them to my studio. Why do I have to go out on the street? You know? <laughs> and he said, and besides, it's important to take a lot of pictures of them because, you know, sometimes they're sour or sometimes they're, they're resistant or sometimes they, you know, they had a bad night's sleep. He said, so it requires me time to get to know them on the noceum, on the set. And I said, I, I get it. I get it. You know, you come from that kind of professional position. But I said, there's something. I have to tell you, from my perspective, there's something else that happens in real time with real people and the skills that you have particularly. I said, I, I have a feeling you would make some truly remarkable pictures if you made yourself available like that. 
And he kind of looked at me, sort of shook his head, like saying, you don't, <laughs> you don't get it, John. I don't have to do that. They all, I, I, can, I can afford to have people do my research for me, do my casting for me. So it was like, even though he could understand my point, it's like his world was too busy yeah. to, to tolerate that kind of, of risk-taking, you know? The studio had to keep going all yeah. the time. Before we continue with my conversation with Joel, I have something really important to share with you about a former guest, Reg Campbell. I interviewed Reg back in episode 397 in San Antonio, Texas, where I was attending the 4x5 Photo Fest. Reg is an amazing editorial photographer who is as generous as he is talented. When I interviewed him back in 2017, he had just completed his final treatment for leukemia. He was in good health and spirits and eager to get back to work, which he did. But unfortunately, his cancer returned and he's fighting this battle yet again. Right now, he's in need of a bone marrow transplant and he's waiting for a match, which I sincerely hope he gets. Until then, I want to leverage any influence that I have with this show to encourage you to help Reg and his family. First, if you haven't already, please register yourself with the National Bone Marrow Registry. All it requires is a swab of your cheek. There's no pain involved. It's especially important if you are a person of color because we are underrepresented in the registry. I've been on the registry myself for over 25 years. Find out how to do this by visiting the website at bethematch.org. You can also support Reg and his family financially by buying one of his prints, which are available for sale on his website. It's a challenging time for any family contending with a serious illness, and it's helpful not to have to worry every day about the finances. Your purchase will really make a difference in someone's life today. How often can we say that? And lastly, spread the word on your social networks and get the word out there. Let's make a difference in Reg and his family's life today. Links for all these resources will be on the website and the show notes. Thanks. I know at one point that uh, for the Cape Cod work um, that you put an advertisement asking people who thought that they, if, if they consider themselves interesting in whatever way, to come and visit you and, and make a portrait. To a certain degree, you were kind of leaving yourself open to anyone to come by and, and, and pose for you. How was that different from just strictly walking around, you know, the streets of, of Provincetown with that four by five over your shoulder and basically fishing? Eight by 10. Eight, Eight by, by 10. 10 over my shoulder, even heavier. So, yeah, I wrote this, you know, what happened was when I started making these portraits, it was so new to me, and I, I, I found my passion almost immediately, and I realized I wanted as much as possible. And that, sure, I go out walking every day, and I carry the camera wherever I go, but I thought if I put an ad in the local paper, in which I said, um, if you are remarkable or know someone who is, Joel Meyerowitz would like to take, make a portrait. So now remarkable is a very special word mm -hmm. because 
everybody is remarkable in one way or another, just for how they look. But also everybody is quite ordinary. <laughs> I mean, we're both those things. And so I wanted to see what fish would swim up to my deck and tell me they are remarkable. So in, in a sense, I made a thousand portraits of from those ads of quote, remarkable people who look like the most ordinary people. So in, in a way in that, but, uh, you know, it was just for me to increase the range of, and I photographed everybody who came, no matter how plain or ordinary they were, if they came in my door and said they're remarkable, I said, I want to know why. Tell me, mm -hmm. you know, show me. And, you know, they would take off their clothes and show me their scar. They would tell me the stories. They would, they would show me they've got three breasts. They're, I mean, people showed me everything. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of amazing. So what did, <laughs> what did you end up learning about people's self-perception as a result of that? That's a lovely question, really. I, I, I mean, I think what I saw, what I learned is that all of us are equally vulnerable. We look in the mirror, we you know, put on makeup, comb our hair, get dressed. But when we're out in the world, we're, we're all a little uncertain as to how we're perceived. And so meeting these people and listening to them tell me a little bit about themselves what, what happened to me is if they could deliver something of their humanity, their, their tenderness, you know, their compassion for themselves and, and others, they became more and more real to me. They weren't just a facade of a person mm -hmm. who's combed their hair perfectly and put on lipstick perfectly. It's a mask. But if the mask can be opened a little bit so that they they come through the mask. It's as if the mask falls away and this vulnerable human being inside vibrates for a moment in front of the camera. I, I see that their humanity is, the re, is their reality. Believe me, there were people who never could release their humanity. They stayed in pose all the time. And in those cases, I often felt how scared they were, how they were holding on for dear life in some way. They mm -hmm. were trying to just keep their outside image present rather than reveal something more human and special about themselves, their secret in a sense. So, you know, not every picture is a success in that way. Some of them may look good on the surface. Like there's one picture in the book that I didn't want in the book. And for some reason, the art director of the book kept on coming back to this picture. And I would say to him, I don't, it's, I, it's a picture I don't really care about anymore. And, you know, and now it's in the book. And I tell you, every time I page the book, I hit that picture. It's like a dead spot. And now the book is going to go into its second edition. And I'm going to go back and say, I want to take that person out. Because it's like there's nothing there, I, I, you know. I and I don't know why he chose. It. I don't know what it was he liked. Maybe she had a camouflage top on or something like that. Mm -hmm. But she is the one person in this group of pictures who doesn't deliver anything. Doesn't let us know anything about herself. 
I think that would be a good. I think it'd be a good reason to keep it in there because I think that's part of the reality. So? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. Because wow. um, I think that that's one, of, like one of the things I've 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 experienced when I'm out in the camp with a camera is people come up to me and say, "Take my picture," and I never decline an opportunity to do that. But when I thought about what that's about. To some degree, I always think that this is this is this person declaring I want to be seen, which means to some degree they they feel like they're not being seen, right? And mm. sometimes they mm. they give themselves, or like you just said, they try to be very in control of what they're giving over, but it's still coming from the very same need, and it's really kind of interesting sometimes to see people like freely giving themselves and being completely open in the moment. And other people who ask me to make their photograph and still resist giving it over. And sometimes that tension itself for me becomes interesting. So rather than fighting, yeah. fighting, fighting it to try and then giving it to me, it's like, okay, if that's what they're willing to give up, that's telling in and of itself. And that for me becomes an interesting photograph because of just that. Sure. The, the inability to reach their potential in a way, the, their failure, you could call it, it's mm -hmm. their failure, their human failure. And it's true. Quite a number of times I photographed people who were incredibly shy, you know, but their shyness was beautiful. Yeah, You could feel the effort it was taking them to project themselves. And, and, and feeling that made me incredibly uh, sensitive to them and, and tender-hearted to them. And so I agree with you there completely. You know, I've shown those kinds of pictures, and there are some in this book too. And I treasure, I treasure those moments because, you know, our vulnerability is expressed in many different ways. How that looks is is a. Uh, I think it's important for other people to see it because they may recognize themselves in the qualities of the picture of the people in the picture that they're looking at. They recognize that it isn't everybody trying to look like a movie star, yeah. but it's people who are putting up the best front that they could or trying to give of themselves in their best way. I, I mean, it's lovely. It's really lovely. And I, I, I feel it was such a gift to be able to make that addition to my life that I had a chance to understand what portraiture really entailed and and it made me feel even greater respect to history's great portraitists you know uh, um, august sander and nadar back in paris in the 1840s nadar made unbelievably remarkably beautiful portraits they seem so contemporary today even though the clothing is of the era the people and the way he related to them. You just go through the history and see these incredible portraitists who put so much on the line. You know, they they had to go out day after day, even at Jay on the streets of Paris. He, I always feel, at Jay must have been an incredible talker, mm. a street wise guy, because he was an actor first. And then he became a photographer. And he knows how to talk to those peddlers on the street and those street musicians and, and the, uh, the sellers of birds or fruit. He stands there and somehow they, in all their 19th century 
a stillness give him something of their magical persona. And, you know, I sit with those pictures and I look at them and I, I'm transported back in time. And I think we have such a gift in our lives to be able to look at photography from across all the ages and see what people looked like and how they responded to the photographer. It's, it, they're hardly any different than we are. Just the clothing is different and, and the instruments are different. But human beings are still looking at one another with affection or curiosity or, you know, resistance. I mean, it's... it's yeah, I think that probably many actors could probably be really good photographers because they study humanity. And one of the interesting things about photographing people at different stages of their lives is that even though we're all very different, we're all very much the same. And I think about, you know, the images that you made of the prepubescent kids, you know, 12, 13, where they're just discovering their awkwardness. And that takes shape in their physicality in terms of how they're in front of the camera. Or or someone, a woman who's, say, reaching middle-aged, or a man who's, you know, entering into his, you know, his 70s. And the way they sort of experience themselves, the way they physically manifest themselves in the world, but especially in front of the camera, that if you are observant, you get to see those similarities. And sometimes that can provide you as the photographer the cue as to what to look for, right? And I'm wondering that, Absolutely. and I'm wondering that, you know, considering your years, you know, of experience observing people both on the street and in terms of a portrait session, what would you say some of those things that you have come to recognize or, or, or to look for beyond just say, say the physicality of just a gesture? You know, everybody at every stage of their life is attaining wisdom, even a child. You know, by the time they get to three, four, five, they've learned many things along the way how to be themselves, how to get what they want, how to uh, behave in certain situations. We're always adding knowledge to our way of understanding ourselves in the world and the world as it is. And I think that when a photographer confronts another person to make a portrait, especially a photographer who's lived long enough to have observed the world and start making some kinds of uh, de you know, determinations as to what things mean. It's like we have a, our own dictionary of observations that lead us to understand other people in, in some way through their outward physicality. We have experienced so much that we recognize patterns is really what it comes down to. And I think you're confronted with you know, the, the eight-year-old or the 80-year-old and you recognize the way they hold their head, the way they're set of their shoulders. Are they still, still coming and growing or are they giving up? Are they hiding or are they showing? Are they playful or are they shy? I mean, there are all these human characteristics that are being offered by the person that you are standing in front of. And so I, I think by taking in the observation and beginning to understand, that's like the first understanding of the other person. 
you you say to yourself, oh yeah, I recognize these characteristics. This person is like this. And so your innate understanding helps you to assist that person in being more of themselves. You'll know what to say. You'll know how to futz around with the camera for a minute to give them a breather so that they could go back into themselves again and come out. I, I, I think that you recognize the innate wisdom of all ages as you stand in front of these people. And if you have respect for that, if the recognition is meaningful enough, you can draw that quality from them into your photograph. That's what makes photographs look so good. Why do you think Diane Arbus's photographs are as powerful as they are? Hmm. She did the work. She went in and she went to see them in their homes. She stayed with them. I mean, she moved in. It wasn't just a snapshot on the street, although Certainly there were those, but when there was an opportunity to engage in their lives, she went further. And I, you know, I, I think that that kind of commitment only enriches your own understanding of human nature, as well as your own visual intelligence about how to make these pictures more meaningful. I love what you said earlier about when you would approach people and you would not say, can I make your photograph? You would say, I need to make your photograph, which yes. I think is that's coming from the very core of of respect for another human being as you can as as a photographer. But during that time that you were making these images, it, that that need was also about you making an effort for a way of rediscovery of what photography was and could be for you. So now that you've had all these years of experience making sort of portrait, how is that need? different when you choose to make a portrait? <laughs> well, I, you know, I have to say that it's true. I, I did need to learn about myself and about what a portrait is. But that need doesn't go away just because I understand more now. When I, and I still make portraits of people, particularly in Italy where I spend a lot of time, I think it's the same fascination when I see somebody whose, whose life is written on them in an interesting way, and I get the call, because I haven't become lazy. I still get the call, and I still follow the call. I cross the distance, and I say, sometimes in Italian, you know, what I need. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a validation or a verification of human human interaction and human nature. I don't think that goes away. What does, I know, wait a second, there is a change. I was in my 40s and 50s when I made those pictures. I was, I'm twice as old now. <laughs> and, and I had that need as a young man and I used a young man's charm, a young man's playfulness. But as an 80 year old, you come across very differently. When I go over to some young women with, you know, children and I say, I want to take, I want to make a photograph. I need to make a photograph. There's always a little bit of fear that crosses their face. What does this old guy want from us? Because my charm factor 
doesn't work the same like it did <laughs> when I had hair and I, and I was cute, you know. So, and, and also, it's really the truth, you know. Any age has assets to it. And, uh, and, and definitely the time we're living in where the proliferation of cameras in phones has made everybody a photographer has also posted some challenges because people are wary. They're afraid of what you're going to do with their picture on the internet, make a fool of them or make trouble for them. Mm -hmm. And so there's a different kind of attitude out there. There's a lot of nervousness, I, f I find myself. So I, I have to, in a way, refashion my approach so that I play the role of the 80-year-old artist who needs to make this picture for whatever my reasons are. So in a way, I have to be even more convincing now because I don't have that the smooth talk and jive of when I was younger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. It's really sort of embarrassing to say this, but, you know, in all honesty, that's the reality that everyone's going to face. Every young photographer someday, if they're still making pictures, they're going to be an old photographer. Yeah. They're going to have to figure out how to do it. Yeah, because I'm, I'm sure that I got away with a lot more when I was 16 with a camera than I do now. <laughs> mm -hmm. Sure. You, you had invisibility and innocence and the charm of waking up to the richness of the world. Yeah, you had a lot of things going for you. And, and once you're more knowing, people, you know, they can misread your intentions easily. But it's okay. It's another challenge to work with. And right now, for me, living in Italy, I, I, and I don't speak the language perfectly, although I communicate, I have to be, I have to really be on my toes when I, when I want to do these kinds of more formal portraits. I have to be on my toes. It's, it's fun. And, and, you know, <laughs> the, the challenge of not speaking the language in terms of having to communicate to them what you want and what you need in, in that moment probably yeah. makes it a little more interesting for you as well. Well, it's, and, and, and also, you know, it's interesting, you know, when you listen to a person speaking English with a French accent or an Italian accent, right? You're charmed, mm. right? It sounds so good because it's, it's your language, but it's newly shaped with an accent and sometimes the wrong construction. But you're always charmed by it. That's what works for me. I, I, may, I can say what I want. I might not use the perfect phrasing, but the meaning is clear. And my earnestness and my and my effort to speak their language is immediately embraced. It was, oh, yeah, yeah, Barbani. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like so sweet. It's so sweet. Genuineness, you know, sincerity yeah, gets you a long yeah. way. Uh, oh, it, it does. And, and, you know, I feel it hasn't ended for me. Photography right now at this age is still lively and engaging and exciting. I still get that same kind of heated up, animated response to things. I, I even sometimes dash out into traffic <laughs> to try to get that, to chase that person across the street. I'm a little more careful now because I'm not as fast as I used to be. Anyway, it's interesting to, to analyze what age has done to the way I make photographs now. Because it's like an athlete. 
You know, it's like Muhammad Ali getting into the ring when he was 50. You know, it's like he doesn't have that speed. Mm -hmm. He has wisdom, but he doesn't have speed or stamina or power. Your powers are failing on the one hand, but your understanding and your wisdom has grown on the other. So one has to find a way of bringing age and knowledge, you know, limitations and advantages in a sense, to focus on the, the art that you want to make. Last time we talked, you were, you were talking to me about the, the still lives that you were doing in, in Tuscany. Was part of that related to that? Um, well, it, it could be in some, in some sense, because I, I, mean, I think there are a lot of factors that went into beginning the, to ask the question about what is a still life in photography. It's, it's just another interesting question that photography throws up. But it also had location factors. It was the summertime. The temperature was so hot, it was hard to be outside in the middle of the day. So I was inside. I, I wanted to take advantage of being inside and do something I'd never done before. I like the idea of doing things in the near dark rather than in the light. I'm known for the light, <laughs> Cape Light, all mm -hmm. that stuff. So this was in the dark. It's sort of the opposite. And also, I think there's a period of reflection that everybody will go through at some point or another about all that you've done and what's undone. And in this case, in my late 70s, I started to look hard at singular things rather than at the, the open-ended characteristics of the street. I started to see that some objects often had a kind of mystique to them. And that if you turned the object around, there was like nothing, nothing, nothing. And then finally you turned it to the last turn and there was something about the shape, the dent, the discoloration, the light on the scratches on the surface, something. And then you saw the spirit of the object hmm. as if every inanimate thing has quality. You know, you could walk along a beach and look at a thousand stones in the course of an hour, but you only pick up two. And one of them was heart-shaped, and the other looked like a, a puppy. <laughs> and, but you, but those, those two jumped out, and you reached down for them. It's as if their spirit called to you and said, Ibarin, pick me up. I want to show you something. And I, th I think that's what happened to me, that my, you know, my life changed, my age, all these things allowed me to consider really for the first time the spirit that some objects may have in yeah. them. Gordon Parks had a yeah. similar, um, similar period for himself. And I think he was in his 70s when he started painting these watercolors. And he had uh, a, a uh, two-level two glass a coffee table in his apartment, which I saw when I got the chance to visit him. And he would paint these watercolors, put them on the lower shelf, and then he would take these found objects and he'd put it on, on the top and then he would shoot down on them. And, and then he had like several, three or four books, I think, in which he had those images along with poetry that he had written as well. So it was really Ooh. fascinating to see a photographer who was known largely for his sort of photojournalism documentary work sort of revisit the still life. I don't know wow. to what degree his physicality 
prohibited him from doing the, the work he was more largely known for, and whether whether this was just another outlet for his photography, because he was he was doing everything. He was composing, he was writing, he was you know he was still doing all that stuff was, when I met him in his seventies. So, yeah. so I just kind of make that connection between the two of you. He's he was magnificent. I, I just got a book, a copy of his book, you know, the uh, his his memoir or whatever, and uh, it was given to me as a, as a gift by a young woman who I I did a favor for, and I'm looking forward to it because I also met him in 1963 or four. Tony Ray Jones and I used to hang out with Gordy Jr., his son. Oh yeah, uh-huh. who unfortunately died early. And we were like a trio on the streets. We would hang out. We'd go to music together. We used to go to dance parties together. And at some point, I met his dad, you know. And we were like, you know, gaga young photographers (laughs) with with Gordon Parks. But he was so kind and welcoming and interesting. And and he was so dashing, handsome guy. You know, it's like, wow, this is what it is to be a photographer, you know. He was he was special. Yeah, I never saw him again after Gordy Jr. died. You know, I always wanted to kind of say sorry for your loss, but I, I never had the opportunity to. Mm. Well, my last question, which I ask each guest, is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own, and it can be anyone—someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So, who would that photographer be, and why? Well, I. Have you have you interviewed Gus Powell? I think I have, or I've been talk in talking been talking to him about doing it. But I think I believe I have. I have so many people. Uh-huh. This well, is episode five hundred. Yeah, well, so people uh-huh, ask uh-huh. me who I've interviewed, and I just go, uh, I have to yeah, take a look. Like. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Well, I, I think you may have. There's a there's a pair right now. I mean, actually, there are many whose work I'm engaged with right now, but. There's a guy named Rob Stevenson in New York who works large format, 8 by 10 He's done a few interesting bodies of work, and he just produced a beautiful book about uh, Florida, about the Space Center, about, about Cape Canaveral and the area around it. Mm-hmm. It is a poetic and beautiful little book, small publishing house, you know. And I happened to get his book and Gus Powell's book, Family Car Trouble, from both of them at the same day. We all met together and each of us gave the other a book. And those two books are both so generous and tenderhearted and intimate and made of ordinary materials, but have a kind of, I don't know, a vision, a vision of the world as they see it today. That I, I've, I've sat with these books. Unfortunately, I just brought them down to Italy. And, and uh, I, in fact, I went to the Photographer's Gallery in London two days ago to order those two books so I could have copies here. And I, I believe that they're important contributors to the ongoing development of photography that uses old values but stays contemporary. And I I think it's so important to see this union between the old and the time that we live in. I have great respect for them. And I got mad respect for you, Joel, as you will know. You know, I couldn't think of a better person to interview for my 500th episode. 14th year doing this. 
Um, it's one of the gifts of the show that we've become friends and uh, that I've had so many opportunities yeah. to sit down and talk with you. So um, a special thanks to you and uh, best to you in this year and to your wife. And uh, just, you know, yeah. thank you for everything you've given me and, and photography. Well, I, I, I really honor this opportunity to be number 500. And I, I think I was in your first year too. Yeah, I think it so. It's been like 1905 uh, uh, or something. Yeah, it's two goals, like that. Yeah, 2007. Anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, seven. Right. When I was doing, I did the, the uh, World Trade Center book. You right. Know, you were mm-hmm. the first person to. But it's always been a pleasure for me. You're really special, Ibaranex. Thank you for doing this again. Thank you. Thanks to Joel for sharing his wisdom and insight with us. Find out more about him and his work by visiting joelmeyerwitz.com. I have several workshops scheduled this year. The first one is next month in Los Angeles as part of LA Street Week. Held by the Los Angeles Center of Photography, it's a week-long event presentations, workshops, and exhibits. I'll be teaching a half-day workshop in Hollywood, but there will be other sessions as well by other photographers. You can find out more by visiting the link on our site or visiting lacphoto.org. I'll be in Washington, D.C. for the Focus on the Story Festival in the fall and the Memento Photographic Workshop in August, as well as my week-long workshop in Tokyo in December. You'll find links for each of these on my website and in the show notes. If you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have led people to take a chance on our show and allowed us to grow. Along with my recent book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, I just released my latest ebook, Nine Pictures, Nine Stories, Volume 2. The first one got a great response, and I'm back with a follow-up, where I discuss stories behind nine images that I created last year. It's just $8, and your purchase is another way you can support the show. Purchase that and any of my previous eBooks by visiting the website. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list. On the YouTube channel, I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including special events, workshops, and more sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or donating through PayPal. And if you found that you can't find every episode of the show, download the Candid Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candor Frame audio engineer is Martin Taylor. You can find at the other martintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candor Frame. <laughs>